You're listening to the Fade to Gray Network. On today, I have Liz Breyer and Rob Wolf. Liz Breyer is a senior training and implementation specialist for a mental health coalition. She has a master's in health advocacy and is a certified psychiatric rehabilitation practitioner. Rob Wolf is a recent North Central University graduate where he obtained his marriage and family therapy degree. He spent the last 14 months doing in-home counseling for a variety of issues, mostly trauma for all ages. He's completed over 500 hours of counseling and 100 hours of supervision. Prior to this venture, he had been an RN for nearly 30 years. So clearly, coming in with this conversation today, I have a lot of knowledge with me at the table. And I'm very, very excited to have these two professionals on to discuss trauma. Specifically, what it is, how it impacts us, the trauma-informed care movement, and experiences they've had in the field and in the classroom. And my hope is that at the end of this conversation, we can talk about strategies that really help people who have a history of trauma be more resilient in their everyday lives. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing really well. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so happy to have you guys here. And so to get started, I'd kind of like to, to break down the word trauma. In your experience and in your education, um, how do you define trauma? What is this? I feel like Rob should answer that as a recent graduate. <laughs> Put that those student loans to work, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so to me, trauma can be lots of things, right? And it's different for each person. I mean, I, this is probably not going to be as textbook as you want, but it's it's different for each person. I, I was just talking to my wife about this last night. There are certain things that I react to that you would never react to and vice versa. So trauma is anything that brings up feelings, uh, things that may upset you, things that draw you back to a place that give you panic, anxiety, any of those things that, uh, that are unique to you uh, and can really draw you out. I, and again, I saw a lot of sexual trauma. I saw a lot of uh, physical abuse, those type of things. Uh, and varying from different ages and the such. So trauma, to me, is just anything that can cause you to react, and it's very unique to each individual. No, I would agree with that, actually. I I would maybe, um, there's definitely some uh, subjectivity to it. What is considered to be a traumatic event for one person may not be perceived in the, the same way for someone else. I mean, I know that there are there are clinical guidelines to give a diagnosis of trauma, so I think maybe differentiating between the two is good because having something that lasts for a particular amount of time, I'm not a clinician, so I can't, and I purposely avoid the DSM-5 actually, so I couldn't even tell you what's in there currently around it. But I think a lot of people will experience trauma and not necessarily rise to the threshold of a diagnosis, but it doesn't mean that they aren't still experiencing some sort of trauma or the aftermath of a traumatic event. I think one of the important things to to establish is that it, it can be direct experience to a traumatic event, such mm -hmm. as the death of a loved one, um, a serious injury, a sexual assault, as we talk about child abuse or sexual abuse, things like that. But it also can be just witnessing a traumatic event, witnessing yeah. a shooting. Right. I would even extend it to community violence. 
<laughs> here in St. Louis um, with the Ferguson, everything that happened there, there were riots, there were things going on within the community and the police and everything. I think that had an impact on children and I think can be considered a traumatic event as well. So it's both direct and indirect exposure. Take a step further and go look at war-torn countries. Mm-hmm kids that aren't involved in anything, but just to have it all the time certainly could be a very traumatic and could, they could draw back on those things. Look what happened with 9-11. I mean, that always comes to my mind because I live in New York and New York City specifically. I look at the, I look at the new tower every day from my office window, you know, and get that daily reminder of what, what went down. And I think a lot of people experienced, you know, vic- uh, secondary trauma or vicarious trauma by just watching it over and over and over again on the news, mm-hmm. not even being anywhere near where it happens. So, yeah, I think there's more than one way to uh, experience something that's traumatic. It doesn't have to be something that happens to you. To your point, Seth, absolutely. Well, and I really liked how you just mentioned the news and social. I mean, I would extend yeah. the news, things that are happening in social media. We live in a day and age where we can be traumatized just by turning on our computer or turning on the television. I think it's, you know, we're experiencing at rates no other generations have experienced before. For people who have experienced trauma or have encountered it, whether it be direct or indirect, what are some of the things that they might experience as a result of that? I think it can impact every area of your life, you know, depending, depending on the person. I mean, we use the, um, SAMHSA has a, uh, a guideline, the eight dimensions of wellness. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but it's like a wheel that they show that has uh, different dimensions of life that, you know, people uh, seek to thrive in and occupational, financial, spiritual, emotional, it can impact every area of your life, depending on well, resilience factors and what's going on in your life at the time, you know, family history. I mean, there's so many things that go into how impactful something's going to be, but I'm someone who openly talks about my own trauma history. I actually use that intentionally in a lot of the trainings. And for me, one of the key things that I experience a lot is um, having a really short fuse (laughs) about things, (laughs) like super short, like where some people may have like a 30 second window before they know something's going to happen. I get like a two second before it goes, <laughs> goes into that uh, mm-hmm. bad place. Um, and I don't feel safe often. I'll walk around even with people that I know. And my first go-to is to not feel safe and I have to like force myself into a, a different mindset about it so that my nervous system calms down because my nervous system is heightened all the time. So hypervigilant. Yeah. Yeah. The flight fight. My go to is fight, but I am not opposed to flight either. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I spent it in that time. I spent a lot of time in that place and it's it's exhausting. It can be really exhausting. I, I would say avoidance goes along with that hypervigilance, too. Right. I mean, there are a lot of people that just uh, will not do certain things or they're reminded of certain things. I know uh, we had a traumatic event in our family. My uh, niece passed away at age 20. Very unexpected. Hmm. And it's affected a big chunk of our family. And so trauma reminders of dates, like my wife, like, you know what date is? I'm like, I have no clue. But to her, it's that day. And so those reminders and avoidance of those things are, are another big key factor to that. And it's funny you mentioned that, uh, Liz. I actually, I've had some couple different traumatic things occur in my life, and I've used them both sparingly, but in, in some of my sessions, just to kind of give them something to relate to, to let them know that they're not alone. Yeah, I think that's a good point because I train clinicians and social workers uh, largely, although we have other disciplines that intersect in mental health. 
other disciplines that come in also, but I do it intentionally because I'm my focus over the last couple of years has been primarily on what the clinicians are experiencing. I think they bring a lot of their own trauma history already to the table. There's a reason why most people choose this field and it tends to be some sort of lived experience, whether it's themselves or a family member or, you know, someone close to them. So they're already coming to the table with that. And then on top of that, they may be experiencing, you know, vicarious trauma, burnout, all the other things that come with the job, and it's just exacerbating it. So I intentionally disclose it because I do feel like, and this is different probably from, you know, the rules that go around self-disclosure to your client, but I I feel like we don't have freedom amongst professionals to talk about this openly because of so much of the stigma internally. So we downplay it or we, we don't focus on it. And that, that can really impact our ability to help people if we don't <laughs> acknowledge it. So. Yeah. And I think it's, you got to pick your spots, right? It's just yeah. very important when you bring it up. Like yeah. um, if you're usually it was, I had, I had about 10 or 12 routine clients that I saw through uh, my um, internship and probably half of them were kids that had been sexually abused. Yeah. And so I had to be very careful when I would share yeah. things with them. But I yeah. think it was important for them to know if I had experienced anything, you're not alone, right? You can get past this. There is a way to get – it's never going to go away, but how a better way to deal with it and, and just to let them see that there was that possibility there. I thought that was important. No, and I think that self-disclosure, you know, there's a lot of debate around that. Uh, but when, when we share that, if we share that, and how we share that. Uh, with clients, but I want to piggyback off of what Liz shared in regards to the power in sharing it among colleagues. Yeah, I think so often there is a fear that if we disclose our history or our mental health concerns or the things that we have been through, mm-hmm. that we will somehow be judged or viewed as incompetent, yeah. fearful that they will lose their job. There's this really interesting hypocrisy in the field Mm -hmm. where we accept all of our clients for struggling, but we ourselves are not allowed to. Yeah, Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that that we we, we really need to look at that and looking with professionals that do disclose their trauma histories or their mental health concerns. I view them as warriors in the field because it's a change that we need desperately. I agree. Because in my opinion... If I am going to be of any help to anyone else, I first have to be open about where I'm at. And I think that there is power in sharing that with people that we work with. Yeah, I'd agree. And I, I, I was very upfront with my clients and even the other folks that worked around me, my colleagues, that I have a regular therapist I've seen for years. I'm like, I think every human being should have somebody they could go and unload on. I just think it's, to me, it's proven valuable. And I would, wait for those weeks until I had the time to go and talk to them. And so, yeah, I think, I think it normalizes who you are, but there is a little bit of a fear that you don't have it all together. But as Liz mentioned earlier, most people that have an affinity for this field don't have it all together, right? We whether, we're, yeah. <laughs> whether we're seeking for answers, right. seeking for whatever, or we've suffered a trauma or we've gone through an event that you know, the story again and again and again in my classes of, well, this happened to me, I went to counseling and this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's where it comes from. You saw what it did for you. Yeah. And so you're willing to want to help somebody else. If you can help somebody, then you want to be able to do it. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think, you're, you know, to both your points that it has to be intentional. I don't, 
you know, our trainings can typically be anywhere from 20 people to 60 people. I've talked openly at it at conferences to rooms of, you know, 200 people. So you have to very carefully choose. First of all, it's emotionally draining to put yourself out like that all the time. So you have to, you know, I can never, I'm much better at it now, but there was a time where I may have been sharing one specific thing and it actually had to do with trauma encountered on the job and I would cry. Now, I don't particularly love doing that, but it, it does have a very interesting effect on folks who are watching it, especially if you are uh, talking to a room full of clinicians, because it's a level of vulnerability that makes people very uncomfortable. They don't like it. So you can see like half the room will be nodding their head in agreement and feeling like they can connect with you. And the other half is looking to get out of that room as soon as possible. And they totally shut down. Like there's, and it's visceral. You can see it. Um, but I do think it is, it still needs to be done because to Seth's point, how can we be creating environments of help and healing for folks if we can't deal with our own stuff and be open about our own stuff? Totally agree. Going off of that a little bit, tell me about why, what landed each of you in the field? What drew you into training clinicians or providing direct care? What is it that brought you here? I sucked at everything else. No, (laughs) that is not true. That is not true. Family history of trauma, mental illness in my family made me think in my mid-20s that I was going to save the world. I think a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, college students think that initially, you know, very uh, rose-colored glasses that you're going to affect so much change. And I remember I was sitting in my abnormal psych class and all these light bulbs were like going off in my head of, oh, Oh, that explains this. Oh, that explains that. Now, I've since come, uh, I've had many evolutions in my thinking about psychopathology in general, but that's what led me to the field is that I, I felt like I could do some good there. And then I've, mm-hmm. I've worn a lot of different hats in this field from administrative work to direct advocacy, running grassroots organizations. I've done a little bit of everything. So right now I've landed on training just because I, I think the pendulum is swinging and that providers are really not getting the support that they need uh, to do the jobs that they're being asked to do. So that's the short version. So mine is, as you read my bio, it's a long and winding road. I mean, this is like my fourth career. So been an RN forever, uh, right? I graduated in May of 90 and I wasn't using that. I'm actually so artificial grass, right? I know. And in fact, when I would tell my, I never told my clients, but all my colleagues that I did, they thought I was crazy. They're like, what are you doing here? So about five or six years ago, um, I had had some experiences with, in my own therapy, working with other people. And I thought, I want to do something that I was passionate about. Wasn't really passionate about what I was doing then as far as selling artificial grass. There's not a lot uh, life affecting changes in that. And so that's really what drew me into it. And I realized that I'm kind of built for it, if that makes sense. I have a pretty strong personality that I don't draw stuff home with me so I could go hear the most horrific things with my clients and kind of, I live in compartments. And so I would separate it into there and, and knew that I could help them for that time and it didn't draw me back in and, and didn't wear me down. So I think that's where it came from, just wanting to be passionate about something that I did and helping others. Um, that's kind of where it came from. And I, I want to work with couples, not a lot of people do, but that's what I would really like to do eventually. That's cool. That's awesome. What I, I do want to talk about the change in careers, though, from an RN to to counseling. Um, I, I think that's an interesting. I mean, I, everyone we all have our own. We all have our own path, and we all have our own journey. And, and it sounds like you have definitely been on one, Rob. So tell us a little bit about 
what was that? Why, well, why the change? I, so when I did nursing, I got into medical sales. Uh, I, sold, I sold for Medtronic for seven years. And very long story, I have kids. So I have two older ones. We decided to have our third one. When we had our third one, my boss at Medtronic told me, hey, I know guys that try to put their family first. That never works. I'm like, okay, so I've got to leave this, what I'm doing right now. So then I jumped to the family <laughs> business for, for artificial turf. But to go back to the nursing, the last thing that I did in nursing, I worked in the cardiac cath, cath lab. I loved the work, right? Someone would come in terribly sick, uh, having an MI even, you would come in and on call and, and make them feel better. What I think that helped me as far as where I'm at now is I'm almost, I don't like to say callous, but I'm, I'm hardened to certain things. I accept certain things. I know death is a very natural part of life. I know people will get sick and get injured. And, and, and I also know when people tell me stuff, I'm generally unshockable because I'm just not surprised of anything. So I think that's really helped me in my career path is just that it was funny. I, my sister is a, a GYN oncologist. So she's seen a lot of death, a lot of death in her life. I asked her, I said, so do you think it's the fields we chose that made us the way we are. She goes, no, I think we chose the fields we're in because of the way we are. So I, I, I think it's kind of my personality in that switch over from nursing. I did, I'd love the work, but I don't know that I could go back to that portion of my life. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested to hear the changes in career paths, especially what leads people into counseling. I just, cause I think it, I think it's truly, I think everyone has a story in that regard and normally yeah. they're pretty good. So yeah. I appreciate you yeah. sharing that. Um, I mean, I will share just from my own perspective. I mean, the things that drew me into the social work field, uh, it's essentially the desire to work one-on-one -on -one and with, with individuals to help them overcome ordinary life situations due to the, my own personal difficulty with depression, anxiety, and social uh, situations growing up. And I think... I was, it really was a trajectory of changing from the ministry to therapy because I wanted to go into the ministry. And then when you realize how you're gay, it doesn't really work out very well. So the, a little you know, self-limiting, is that what I you're saying? Say, okay. Seth? Well, yeah, just, just a little bit. And so I had to say, what is the next, what's. What is the closest thing? What is the closest thing to being the hands and feet of Christ? And I, I picked the social work path. But it wasn't my first choice. I mean, it was definitely the, the better of two evils. Well, or two goods, if, however you want to look at that. Looking at trauma, can we talk a little bit about PTSD? And do you guys know anything about PTSD? I mean, sure. I know, I know some things about it. Yeah, I don't work. I think... People uh, for a long time only thought that that uh, applied to veterans and didn't realize mm -hmm. that, you know, other people could be experiencing uh, PTSD as well. I don't think I've worked with too many people directly who have that as their primary diagnosis. So I don't know, Rob, you probably can speak to that maybe a little more. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I read a book on where it started. I mean, about 30, 40 years ago, that was folks coming back from the service, right? And and what's going on, and then they kind of came up with the diagnosis. But you're right, it's, it is every day, and it can be different mm -hmm. things. Like, literally, she's not here, so I'll say it out loud. My, my wife has it. We've talked about it. We got a magnet in the mail one time. It lists, hey, it was for a training. List the 
top five symptoms of PTSD. I'm like, um, you have four of these, dear. That means that these things are going on. It's the hypervigilance and the, and the avoidance and all those things. And, and I saw it a lot of my clients, right? I had a lot of uh, little folks with sexual abuse. I had one that there was a, a loss of a parent and in a violent way. And so there was a lot. So it was familial from on top down that we had to work through and, yeah. and let them know that it was very real, right? This is not, you're not making this up. My, my whole goal when I work with them was to not take the load, but to lighten the load. Uh, there was a, a word picture I used with all of them was, uh, and it, if you've ever watched Friends, this is always sticks in my head with Ross with the pivots, taking yeah. the couch up the steps, pivot. Yeah. I always wanted to shout it in, in session, but I didn't. But I always liked it. I said, hey, look, Let's take this couch outside and say we're on the third or fourth floor. I said, I bet you over time, you might be able to get this up a couple steps, but you're never going to be able to carry this yourself. I said, but what if I got on the other end? What if your mom and your dad or your siblings, what if they help? You still have to carry this, but you lightened it some. It doesn't mean it's going to go away, but the more you can talk about it, the more you get it out the easier your story, and you can lay claim to it, is your story can deal with it. And, and so that was just my approach. That's the way that I always looked at it. With And, and these were, for me, you know, there were four or five of them, true sexual abuse or, or violence in their life. Uh, it was something that was very real to them. And, and the PTSD was, was true, right? It was things that they avoided, things that they didn't want to do because of the trauma that occurred in their life. And again, I see it in my family, right? All these things that have gone on. So I know it's very real and mm-hmm. it extends to everybody. As Liz said it, yeah, it started with the, uh, the military thing, but man, it's very real and day to day and can be in varying degrees. And that's something I want to touch on that trauma does not necessarily result in PTSD yeah but it can. It can. Um, Absolutely. One may experience depression, anxiety, uh, panic, relationship difficulties, etc., even if the symptoms do not add up to a diagnosis of PTSD. Correct. Um, and so it, it can really be beneficial with any form of trauma um, to work that out from a trauma-informed perspective with a therapist and really explore that. We talked a little bit about the symptomology regards to hypervigilance and things of that nature, I do want to just run through uh, just kind of a list of some of those symptoms that you may experience having encountered trauma, which can include flashbacks, nightmares, emotional distress when reminders are present, physical reactivity, the hypervigilance, as we talked about earlier, which often comes with an increased startle response, um, engaging in risky behaviors, Difficulty concentrating, difficulty with sleep, inner irritability or aggression, and then also looking at changes in mood. Often negative thoughts about self, others, the world, blaming that negative affect, uh, losing interest in activities that you used to enjoy, forgetting key parts of the trauma uh, is, often, is very common, and then feelings of isolation. And then as Rob has talked about, the avoidance, right? Um, avoiding trauma-related thoughts and feelings and those ex- external trauma reminders. I just wanted to kind of run through that because there's a lot of things that, that one can experience. And just because you're experiencing one of these things does not mean that you have PTSD. Just things to kind of look out for. 
anything you, you guys would add to that? I think I ended up with that diagnosis, one of a few that I've had, but I, I don't, I never felt like it fully fit my specific situation. Although I do have quite a few of those, but I think complex trauma would have been more of an accurate diagnosis had I gone in to the system as a child, you know, that certainly would have been uh, more accurate. But um, I do feel like with PTSD, a lot of times it's just, they need to do more work at having more nuance in our current diagnostic manual. It's too general. I don't know that everybody is going to fall into that category. And for me, what makes trauma trauma is whether or not it's the, dis- the level of distress it's causing. Like, is it impacting your life? I mean, I think that's true with all of the mental health diagnoses. It's only an issue when it's an issue. <laughs> you can be experiencing a lot of those things and still not ever have it be impactful enough to um, affect your functioning. So. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Liz. It's not an issue unless it is, right? I mean, some people mm-hmm. can see something. For instance, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, something can happen to my wife. Same thing can happen to me. It affects us differently. And so to her, it could be PTSD. To me, it's just another thing. And the, the other caveat I put onto it is the, the changes that can occur that you don't even realize are related to it. I have one client in mind specifically who is was my age and the trauma that they had early on completely changed who this person was, right? They were, their life path 40 years was completely different based upon it. So whether it was PTSD or just strictly the traumatic experience, it, and they would tell you this to a person, yep, I would be completely different if this didn't happen to me. So just knowing that it's long-term and that it can affect all types of things for them and that they don't even realize it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think too, if you take into account the uh, work that's been done uh, with adults based on the adverse childhood experiences too. So if you add, if someone has a history of that and then they experience a traumatic event later on in adulthood, the likelihood of that having a more profound impact on them is going to be increased. Can we break that? You just mentioned the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, and that, you know, for those who aren't, don't have a background in mental health or understand what that is, can you break that down a little bit? Because that study was, in, I mean, it's it groundbreaking. Was pretty, yeah, it was it's groundbreaking. Time. It's got some issues with it over time, but for the time when it happened, I think it was pretty groundbreaking. So it was, what, 1996 or 1997. It was a joint collaborative uh, research done by Kaiser Permanente and the CDC. And they had about, it was a little over 17,000 people respond to the study uh, to talk about uh, 10 questions that basically looked at adverse experiences that can happen in the home things such as divorce, uh, substance use in the home, violence, uh, mental illness in the home. Um, I can't remember the other ones off the top of my head, but it's uh, 10 questions. And of the 17,000 that responded, a very high percentage of them had more than one. Many had more than two uh, and so on. I have nine of the 10. The, the problems of, the problem with that study is a few. So the majority of folks who responded were in a particular demographic. It was mostly white, college educated, you know, middle class and up, mostly women. So what it did do, what was incredibly interesting about it was that it brought to light something that was being othered, I guess, for lack of a better word. Like if middle class white people had it, 
then this must be a bigger issue than we think it is. <laughs> so that was that was the one the one thing that I think came out of it. And they've done studies since then. Uh, there was one done in Philadelphia in 2012, I think, that much smaller sample size. I think it was less than somewhere between two and three thousand people. But they looked at external factors, so they had a much more uh, ethnically and racially diverse group respond because Center City Philly is a very diverse city, and they looked at things like bullying racism, neighborhood safety, stuff like that, and added those to the current questions. And as you can imagine, the rates of the original questions were very high for this second group. But then when you added these other elements in, the responses were also very high. Um, I made a few of those myself, actually. So what's the most useful piece of information out of all of this, though, is that it helps in terms of interventions with children because we now know the more of those more of those questions that you answered positively to, the more of those experiences you've had, the more likely you're going to have things in adulthood such as poor health. There's a high level of autoimmune disease being linked to childhood trauma. There is higher uses of substance use, higher uses of mental illness. Mortality rates are higher. Like the amount of physical health issues that are impacted by this uh, just just because of the way trauma changes the brain, just because of the way it changes the pleasure centers of the brain, I think, would make someone more likely to use and not know when to stop, you know, or not experience the same outcome from, say, drinking that the average person would experience. So they have to use more because their pleasure center has been damaged. So it's it's been very useful in terms of that. Actually, it's funny because... Um I did some training. It was ACEs was something that we had in our arsenal that we didn't use. Like my first probably probably eight or nine months I was there. And then we really started using it when I would do assessments. And I found it very valuable. I was, you know, surprised at how many people answered positively. Well, even looking at it myself, I'm I realize this. I'm top of the chain, right? I'm a white privileged male. I made note of that in the room. And I'm like, shoot, I even had three or four of these myself. Yeah. And so yeah. imagine if you were a minority in a divorced home, all these things pile up. I remember doing one assessment. I'm like, shit, she's got nine or 10. It was just, you're right. It's just, it gives you one more thing to kind of look at. And yeah. the other thing that you mentioned, the fact that it was so slanted is we've already got an issue in mental health that in general, folks that are minorities don't, yeah. <laughs> they don't do mental health as it is. And so yeah. to give us one more tool to help with those people is, is you know, it, it was eye opening to see those things. So. The man that I do the trauma training with at my job, my colleague is an African-American man who's a little younger than me. I think he's 47 or 46. And we bring two very different experiences. We have the same level of childhood trauma. Um, but the perspectives and how it impacted are very different. And even just from a cultural lens, like to your point that, you know, certain families color will, how they seek help looks very different. Where they seek help looks very different. Their level of trust for medicine is very different, which is 100% justifiable, you know, in yeah. many, many ways. Um, so, and it's eye-opening because when he and I do this training together, the majority of the workforce in New York City at this point are people of color. You start to see less of that the higher up you go in leadership. You know, the executive directors and the administrators, they tend to be white, but the direct care staff are mostly people of color and they will start to open up about their own trauma histories once they see he and I together 
you know, they, I, I laugh, I kid him. I'm like, they're probably thinking, well, if he trusts that white woman, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have an issue. Like, <laughs> he's putting all his stuff out there in front of her and, and, and everything's okay. So, and we've heard some really eye-opening things be discussed by providers of just with their own experiences. And like when they start to put those pieces together that, hey, this isn't just the people I'm working with, this was me. I have nine of those, you know, or I have all of those. Yeah, it's, it's helpful in a lot of ways. What I found so interesting in the research was the tie of those experiences, right? The adverse childhood experience to biological things down the road that mm-hmm. literally um, experiencing a certain amount of traumatic experiences in your life can reduce your lifespan by up to 20 years. Like yeah. that is yeah. that. That's significant. <laughs> um, and I feel like it changed the game for mental health in just in how we conceptualize the concerns that we see in our clients. I think it changed the private field. I would not, mm-hmm. I would argue that it hasn't changed much in the public right now. You know, you, okay. I know you had referred to it as trauma informed care, which is the national phrase that we use to describe this, but. I'd like to see that be pushed a little bit further to be more like trauma responsive at this point. Like we need to take it out of the knowledge base into changing our practice uh, because that's, that's, yeah. Let's talk about that though. There are stages of change in the trauma informed care model, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I know there's four of them and I'm not remembering. Yeah, there are four. You know. yeah, um, yeah. I'm not remembering them either. Shame on me. And I train on this, but I'm having a Sunday moment. Um, I would argue that we are someplace in between right now. We are somewhere in between trauma-informed and trauma-responsive, and the two that are after have more to do with people's direct practice. I don't feel like the system, the public mental health system, is doing much with this information. It sits on an assessment. They're not really doing anything with it. Most of the folks, because to your point of it, mortality rates are um, greater with people who experience trauma, but then you add in the poverty factor, which is also shaving years off of people's lives, and the uh, the physical impact to being on antipsychotics, particularly for long, long, long periods of time, is also taking you know twenty to twenty five years off of people's lives. So all of those combined, we need to do something seriously. We keep talking about how much money mental health care costs and how much you know, well, like the state of New York is always in a Medicaid deficit. We always have. You know, we're always short money and cutting services, but we're not asking the right questions around this, I think. So. What are the, well, let's talk about that. What do you think, what do you think needs to change? What are the right questions that that are not being asked? (laughs) That's, that's a day long. That's a, that's a conference by itself. (laughs) I think some of the questions need to be looked more at. I mean, what's the phrase that they use in trauma what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you. I mean, that's kind yes. of the catchphrase now. Um, but there's some truth to that, that we we have a deficit-based medical model that only looks at, oh, how did somebody describe it to me the other day? Name it, frame it, and tame it was how we approach uh, mental health. And from a trauma perspective, that that doesn't work. Like, you can't take voice and choice away from people who've experienced trauma. You can't force treatment on people who've experienced trauma. I mean, you can, but you're not going to get the outcomes that you want because you're putting people 
again, in a place where they have no choice, no decision-making capabilities, and are put in that fight or flight or freeze stage indefinitely, the longer they remain in the public mental health system. It's different when you can pay out of pocket or when you have good insurance or when you're voluntarily seeking care because you're doing that on your own terms. But if you're having it forced on you, that should not, we shouldn't be putting our hands on people when they get admitted into a hospital involuntarily and they have a moment. But our go-to is we restrain people and shoot them up full of hellball. <laughs> How is that trauma responsive in any way, shape or form? Especially folks with significant sexual abuse histories. That's just one example. <laughs> and for me, those are the people that I, I saw the non-private sector, right? These were all Medicare, Medicaid. They were mm -hmm. somebody seeking help. And while they wanted it to go fast, it goes as fast as it goes, right? I mean, I'm dealing with kids. They're telling me about their uncle molesting them. It's going to take as long as it's going to take, right? I mean, yeah. we, mm -hmm. we spent the majority, it's funny, all of them knew. All right, so what are we doing? We're building trust, right? That's that's what we're doing for the longest amount of time. You've got to trust me before you share this story with me. And, um, you know, triggers such as my name. I had one that my name was a trigger for them. So, you know, you got to you, you yeah. build those things up and you just cannot force it. And fortunately for most of them, I had the amount of time. But, you know, you get into factors of uh, families that move, right? Just out of the blue move or disappear, or their mm -hmm. phones, you know, you, I have a reliable phone every day, all the day, all the time. I had two when I was working there. Phones could be shut off, right? Electricity, they, it's cold, it's winter. And so they disappear and, and you feel like you're getting somewhere with them and they feel like they're getting somewhere that drops off. So challenges are real. Um, and especially for, you know, if you're young, it's, I mentioned the person that was older, it's going to affect you for the rest of your life. <laughs> So the sooner we can at least talk about it, the maybe the better, because that was at the end of our trauma focus uh, was what's our life look like after this? This doesn't have to define us. This isn't who we are, part of us, but what are we going to look like after that? And so to be able to have that time with them was, was really important. And, and sometimes you just, you didn't because you're trying to get them through. So that can yeah. be very tricky yeah. also. That time factor is a big issue, but even things like the physical environment that you're offering treatment in. So how, how chaotic is it? You know, what is what do the lights look like? Are staff able to actually spend a decent amount of time with you or are they so overburdened by just the paperwork alone just to get paid that all they're focusing on is, you know, the dollar because that's what's being pushed on them from up above them. You have these very disconnected administrators who haven't probably sat in front of a client in years, you know, but keep pushing all of these other things onto clinicians. They're getting burnt out. You know, you don't have a good female to male staff ratio for the amount of people who may have those issues and need to work with someone specifically. You don't have therapists who look or sound like you. If you're a person of color, probably not going to be one of disclosing all your stuff right off the bat to someone who's not a person of color. There's a lot of things we could be changing, Seth, I think, to your point. And maybe it isn't as big of a gap as I think it is between the private and the public, because listening to Rob, it sounds like it may not be, but... Um, I think we have two different systems in all honesty, you know, one that has uh, way more, um, uh, not freedoms, but way more uh, advantages than it realizes as weird as that sounds. Cause we're talking about mental illness, but there is some level of advantage to being able to pay $500 out of pocket to get an hour with a psychiatrist versus, you know, Medicaid and you get in 10 minutes with a person who doesn't ever look up once to see your face. Big difference. 
Well, it is. I mean, there's a huge difference between the for-profit and the non-profit world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just in its ex- execution and ac- access to care is very different. Speaking of that, just in general, regardless of public or private, when should a person with a trauma history seek professional help? Someone has a trauma history and they're kind of like, you know, when when do I need to talk to a counselor? When do I need to make that phone call? You want to answer that, Rob? Uh, as soon as soon as possible i mean uh, well i think when they're ready to talk about it right seth i mean that that's the big thing you cannot i i remember being in a counseling session one time it was a i forget what the place was but it was a post-abortion thing and and the mom was ready for the daughter to move on and daughter's like i don't even want to talk about this well there's no sense there was no trauma for her there's trauma for mom so maybe Mm -hmm. mom needs counseling it's not you, you you have to they joke about the first step is admitting you have a problem. Well, if you can't own up to it, then you're not ready. But if there, it's affecting you and it at all, make the call, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it is sooner the better so that you can work it out and start talking about it. And, you know, I had some of mine were years before. I had some that were months before. It's just a matter of um, kind of owning up to it. And, and being able to to talk about it because if you're not ready and I had again I had some that it took us a year to get to a point where they were ready and it had been several years behind but being mm-hmm. being ready to be open to talk to somebody is probably the most important thing yeah I would agree with that Rob in working with clients so in a in a therapy setting keep that in mind and then Liz for you um, and just kind of looking at the different programs you're running the direct care that you're seeing, how do you measure success? How do you measure a client's progress toward a goal or a task? I don't think we can measure it like we would measure other things. So I want to, I want to jump into that a little bit. Wow. That is so tricky. I mean, so that was one of those things because a lot of mine is training that was fresh. There's a couple things I wanted to do. I was, I want to be solution focused when I grow up. So to me, having them see those changes uh, them see the steps they want to take, but really it's on them, right? I mean, we got to talk to them about when they're ready. And there were a couple and see, so when I graduated, they all knew I was leaving, but they could stay in the system. There were a couple that were ready to go. And then there were a couple, they just wanted to hold on a little bit more. And I wanted to say, but you're so ready. You're ready. So what we would generally do is we'd go back and let's look at our treatment plan. <laughs> what were the things we were going to work on? Did we accomplish A, B, C, and D? If we did, okay, what do we need to do to get you to the next step so that you have enough confidence to kind of be on your own? But, you know, really getting to uh, them to agree on some things that they want to see change. And uh, I have one in mind specifically that when I first met this person, they're like, we're never going to talk about it ever. By the time we were done, we were full-fledged talking about it, talking with family about it. And when I was done, they're like, okay, good, ready to go. And so sometimes, it, to me, that was a sign, right? I'm, I'm a salesperson. So there's my sales sign. They're ready to go. Uh, I think you just, on an individual basis, and you've got to build up with them and hope there's not constraints, right? You go back to the public versus private, that insurance is going to run out. There's a limited time. Fortunately for me, that never was the case. But I think building it up with them and going back, checking in with them. Where do you feel like you're at? Where, where are we on this? And reassuring them when you feel like they're further along than they think they are. 
then ultimately you're not in control of it, right? I mean, you just aren't. Um, it's one thing for me to say, I think you're done with your trauma. It's another thing for you to say, I don't think I'm quite there yet. So I, I think you have to leave part of it in, on their plate. Yeah, I would agree with that. The answer is probably the same from a, a non-clinical perspective, you know, because I have run programs uh, over the years, day treatments, things like that. Uh, and a lot of the things that I've, programs I've supervised have been self-help style programs. So they call it peer-led programs in the public system, which is basically just people with that shared lived experience running it. And there's no time frame typically to that level of support because it is self-help. So you can be with that group where you're getting support as long as you want it and as long as you need it. And, you know, to be clear, it's not clinical interventions you're getting, but you're getting that connection piece and that, that shared uh, accountability and the ability to, you know, process what whatever treatment you are getting with someone, what's working, what's not working, and there's no time frame to that. So when you feel you've gotten what you needed, you're done. And most people don't really leave those types of uh, situations because it's so valuable to them to have that connection. I mean, who is it, Doctor Vessel uh, Vanderkolk, the guy who wrote The Body Keeps the Score? I've heard him say more than once that connection is the number one. Uh, thing that we need in mental health across the board. That's more valuable than, and I don't mean this to be disparaging against those of you in direct practice, but it is more valuable than a lot of that other stuff because of all the different ways that it impacts people and their experiences. No, so. you're, that's not disparaging. Connection is the key, Liz, right? Yeah. I, I have people, well, I didn't like my therapist. Okay, there's a million others. Go find another because common mm-hmm. factors tell you that 40% of it is your connection with your therapist. And so I, there were some clients that I prided myself on connection. And there are a couple that I didn't. And I wanted to beat myself up. And I thought, you know what? They're just that percent that we didn't connect. And if they found somebody else, I'm like, that's great for them, right? That's, that's, that's what we want for them. So uh, I think that's part of what you have to take on as a therapist, not taking it personal, right? It's not you. It's just that relationship, and you have to be comfortable with that. And um, as long as they get help somewhere, that's the key thing. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It has a lot to do with the flow, to use a really generic term. Like, what's the flow between you and the person that you're working with? And if it's not there, it's not there. And that's there's nothing, not everybody's going to connect like that, and that's fine. Um, I, again, because I work in the public side, I follow a model uh, a friend of mine, a colleague from Temple University, designed a philosophy on um, mental health treatment in general known as community inclusion. If you're curious, you can go to Temple and look for the just putting community inclusion and the whole page will come up. But he he has spent a lot of time over the years, at least 15 years now, I think, looking at how we can get people connected back to life so that what happens when the services are done or you run out of money or it's just not working for you and how do you get people connected back to life and not where every single thing that they're relying on that's helpful is coming from the mental health system? Because as we all know, no matter where in it you work, funding changes. We get new politicians in who have different ideas about what's helpful. We have a pendulum swing that's constantly going like this. So how do you get folks connected to natural supports in life also that they can turn to when you're not around? Because that's going to probably be the thing they spend more time with than you. Um, that's a very brief description of community inclusion, but that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, that's something we can't control, right, Liz? What what they go back to that system? I mean, as as a marriage yeah. and family therapist, 
or systemic. So we're always looking at what they go back to. And if there's not changes made throughout that system, it doesn't matter what they do. Yeah. Um, they're still yeah. going to have those issues. They will. But the other thing I think that happens on the public side that I don't think happens as often on the private side is that re-traumatization that happens because of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. like an unintended consequence of the treatment, such as, you know, people who have medications forced on them. I don't know if in each one of your states, but we have a thing here called AOT, assisted outpatient treatment, where people can be court ordered into outpatient services. It doesn't have as much teeth, obviously, as, as involuntary inpatient will, but it's still a lot of monitoring and a lot of um, regulating what someone's life looks like on the outside. Uh, I, I think these types of things are problematic because they don't, if you take away choice from folks, which is something they lost when that traumatic event happened, they're probably going to buck against it. And then we frame that as being non-compliant. When really it's just a normal self, <laughs> you know, it's how anybody would react <laughs> to those circumstances. Yeah. Most people no, don't like right. choice yeah, being taken away from them. We don't like it as a species. We're very, <laughs> very pro-choice in that respect. Give us, give us the ability to define our own lives, um, even if we're making shitty choices. Because show me someone who doesn't make those types of choices. I did a class on trauma, like becoming a trauma-informed care professional. And that was one of the things they talked about a lot was like, even within the school system, teachers might look at a child's behavior and be like, this is very problematic. But when you actually look at the bigger picture and you see everything that's going on, their behavior makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. And if you were yeah. in the same shoes, you would be doing the same exact thing. Yeah. And I think that's and that's just an example, but I mean, I think it's so true and applicable that often we need to look beneath the surface because mm -hmm. it's not always what it seems. I would agree with that. Tell us, tell us about a success story, whether it be working with an individual client or on a training or a program. Tell me a success story in which you personally had an impact in creating change in someone's life. So again, because I've been in training mode for so long, my my ability to make an impact on someone's life happens in a different way. But I definitely, so I do a workshop with uh, three other colleagues of mine around, we call it walking the fine line. And it's the perspective of professionals who have lived experience of mental illness and trauma. So we've done it at like the NASW conferences and a few other more uh, professional types of conferences. And for me, I see success when, and it, it happens differently. So we don't have a lot of people in those conferences raising their hands and talking about their own stuff openly, but without fail at the end of that workshop, and it's typically, I think the longest we've done is two hours. There's a line of clinicians waiting to talk to us. Uh, you know, one of us, all of us, depending on their situation to disclose, to say, you know, I've been so terrified to come out about this. I've been so afraid that I'm going to lose my job. I've been so afraid that my license would be in jeopardy. It feels so comforting to know I'm not alone in this. How can we get this moving forward? Um, that to me is a good sign that I'm doing something right, uh, <laughs> that that's happening. Because at least the conversation is happening. We may not be at the change stage yet but at least people are acknowledging that this is a problem and we need to address it. So. Yeah. And, and for me, I mean, I have, as I said, I probably had a dozen regulars and probably 20 total, but 
at least three of them that we started with trauma focused because of abuse, usually somebody very close that got to the point where they shared their story and shared the couch, right? And, and got to a point where they felt like there's something they could talk about, something they had some control over um, for certain. And then my older person that I went to close this person out and they're like, I got something I'm never going to talk about. So to me, I'm like, close my computer. Oh, this is a challenge. <laughs> Ended up talking about what they wanted to, something similar you mentioned earlier, Seth, about whether you could be uh, you know, in the ministry or a decision along that line, things they had to share with their family. And, you know, by the time I left and, and this person was still seeing someone more accepting of who they were. I think it helped that I was an older male of the same, you know, I was a white guy. He was an older white gentleman, be able to share what he, and I didn't react a certain way. I think that made a big difference to him. So those would be the ones that I would deem successes. Uh, the ones that I still think about that I don't, you know, I obviously don't see them at all right now, but that was success to me. If, if I could get to a point where they felt like, you know, I'm, 40 years, I'm old enough to be a grandfather in a lot of these and, and to have them be able to share their story and comfortable with mm-hmm. and look forward to seeing me. And that was a success to me um, to, to kind of break through on those things because that's not what I want to do. Right. I don't work with kiddos is not, that's not my thing. That's why I'm not a teacher, but to be able to have that, it is my wife's a teacher. I'm like, I do not know how you do this. I would kill somebody. I just would. It would be bad, and I'd be in jail. And so, um, but one on one, it was <laughs> in jail. Those, those were the I'd be in jail. Those are the successes that I had. That to be able to have them trust me and be able to share with them and and share with their family and and genuine. Um, my last day, I remember crossing. A, there was a social uh, worker coming in the house. I was leaving. She's like, all of your clients are saying. They're so sad you're leaving. I'm like, okay, that's not a bad thing. So I've made an effect mm-hmm. in their lives. That's good. When you hear that, which you don't hear often, but when you hear it, <laughs> you know? Yes. Right. Yeah. And not very often, Liz. They never tell you. Yeah. Yeah. You have to grab onto that, though. And that's one of the reasons yeah. I wanted to ask that question was bec- is because we need to grab onto those moments. Because in this profession, in this career, we're not going to hear positive things frequently mm-hmm. and we need to grab those success stories the things that we have done the people we've helped and use them as reminders to help us when things don't go our way and we do we we have situations that are not a success mm-hmm. and so to kind of play into that a little bit tell me about a not success story tell me about a situation or a client <laughs> or a program or a training where you weren't able to be successful, what were the issues and what lessons were you able to apply from that experience? I almost feel like the answer I'm going to give you is also for me an indication of a success, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) if I've pissed off a psychiatrist, (laughs) which (laughs) happens quite often, I think that is It's both a sign of what needs to be changed in my approach and then also that I've actually done what I set out to do, which was to poke the bear and say, hey, this isn't really working. And at the top of this chain are you all and you keep perpetuating this stuff that isn't working. When are you going to be accountable for it? But I've learned I used to be of the mindset that I needed to adapt their language. 
that I needed in order for an exchange to be successful with a psychiatrist, that I had to speak their clinical stuff. I no longer believe that. I think if I keep saying it, it just keeps reinforcing that what they're doing is working. And I don't, I won't do that anymore. So now I, I purposely will use non-clinical language and talk about how much power those words have over people and the labeling that we're doing and over pathologizing everything and everything now is a mental illness and you can't just have a bad day because they've got a code for it somewhere in the DSM and they can get paid for it. So we have to just look at everything through that lens. I've adjusted my, when I've walked out of those conversations or trainings, feeling like I could have done something different. Now I know the different thing to do is to not I don't need to adjust for them. They need to adjust for me. That's kind of where I'm at at this point. <laughs> yeah, and so for me, and this was actually interesting, the conversation I had my last supervision was, it, I, I think going into school, I knew white privilege was, was a thing. Coming out of school, I really know it's a thing, and I'm trying mm -hmm. to see it more. Uh, I had one client who was a young African-American female that I felt like I connected with mom, but I never connected with her. And then I look back and there were a couple others and I, and it's, I didn't know if it was all people of color because there was one that wanted to come back. So to me, that was that struggle of knowing that it wasn't me, that it was maybe a situation, maybe it was someone else in their life that I reminded them or whatever. And so, yes, I saw it as a failure, but I saw it as a success that she connected with somebody else. Somebody else came in and she was able to connect with her. I'm like, that's a win, right? I may not have been that fit for them at this point in time. And it also made me more aware of it to try to be more culturally aware when I go into a room of what things I need to work on and be aware of. Because, you know, I'm almost a 53-year-old dude. <laughs> you got a 13-year-old young gal that's got all these things in their life. And then I'm a completely different race. I, it just... That was a non-success, but in the end, I felt like it was good because I talked to somebody else had gone back in there. I'm like, I'm just so excited she found somebody to talk. To. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's my there's my failure and a success, kind of like Liz's all in one, a little bit different, but uh, I, I, that's how I saw it. Got to put that strength-based lens on, Seth. So it's not failures; it's opportunities I for know. growth. Well, <laughs> that's right. It's so important, though, because even when things don't go well, there's things that we have learned or can apply from those situations, so that we're better at it next time, or the situations mm -hmm. don't yep. happen again. And I think it's so crucial yep. that we do reframe that. That there really is no such thing as a maybe there's not successful in maybe what our goal was. But there's, we can always take some form of success away in regards to things that we can learn or do differently. And so I was really happy to hear that in both of your stories. And in both of them, I heard a lot about connection, right? Mm -hmm. That building rapport. So let's talk about that a little bit. What techniques have you found to be effective in building and developing trusting relationship and rapport with clients or colleagues and professionals in the field? What is it that helped in developing those that relationship? I think authenticity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people can smell bullshit a mile away on whatever role they're in. So if you're not being you and being um, transparent and clear and just, you know, not trying to change who you are in that dynamic, but still keeping within the guidelines of your profession, that usually for me is what done it, does it. When you try to 
when someone is crying hysterical in front of you and their life has been upended and destroyed and they're feeling like there's no hope, it's okay to say, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to turn around and try to find the silver lining in it for them because that's, there is no silver lining in that moment. They don't want to hear that. They're not going to gravitate towards that. And they're going to think that you're not really there for them. Um, so for me, it's been authenticity. Just keep it as real as you possibly can within the guidelines. Yeah, I'd, I would echo that, Liz. I think um, you got to be able to be present and be who you are and be empathetic, right? That was something I learned a lot in school. It's not sympathy to just say, wow, that sucks. I remember telling people, man, I'm, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Mm-hmm. And just leave it at that. I mean, just let them know mm-hmm. that I'm not here to fix it. I'm here to listen and, and just it's okay to, to, to have these feelings. These feelings are yours. They're acceptable. You're allowed to have them. And for me, it was to just be natural. Uh, funny story. I, I have two pets. I have a dog and I have a cat, my son's cat. I will pet them. If I go to a stranger's home, I do not like to touch anybody else's pets. It could be my nieces, my nephews. I don't touch them. And so it became a joke and it was a thing. And I remember one of my last sessions, somebody brought their dog in and one of the parents goes, oh, he's not going to touch that thing. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm a weirdo. And so it, it really broke the eye. They got to see that, you know what, I didn't have it all together. There are weird things about me that were unique about me. And it just kind of broke that ice. And What do you mean you don't touch other people's heads? I just don't. And they all accepted it. So they knew that's who I was. So I think just being very real and within the realm of, you know, confidentiality and such, but being real with them and just attempting them. And look, I, I went to one house, there was literally a pile of garbage in the middle of the room. So just to not make a big deal out of stuff, right? Just, oh, okay, well, let's, everybody apologized for, look, I'm not here to look at your stuff. That's not why we're here. Just trying to let their guard down and let them know that they don't have to be on in front of you. And it was unique because being in homes, boy, there were sometimes they weren't on, right? You could hear fights, Mm -hmm. things going on. So um, I just, as Liz said, just trying to be yourself and be natural, I think is the most important thing. I would add something to now that you've got me thinking, Seth, that we do a lot of trainings around language at mm. my current job. And, you know, I get pushback from a lot of clinicians on this because, you know, particularly in New York City, it's such a, a predominantly liberal area, except for Staten Island, where I'm from, which is like almost entirely not liberal, very conservative. And so, Depending on who's in the room, we try to focus on the fact that clinical terminology, just from a health literacy perspective, doesn't help people because they don't know what the hell you're talking about. And if you bring in issues of culture and background, religious issues, all of the other things that come with folks' experiences, it can make that even worse. But not even just from that perspective, that just because these words have so much power, like if you label someone as a schizophrenic, that's going to follow them for life. That's helpful for you for a billing purpose. And it's helpful for the clinician to have a framework on what treatment would be most helpful given, you know, the patterns around that historically, but that don't call that person that. And we get a lot of pushback of, oh, it's political correctness. And I'm like, it's not in this way that you're thinking. It is deliberately reframing things. There's nothing wrong with reframing things so that you're meeting people where they're at. That's not, that's actually a good thing to do not about changing words just because we're uncomfortable with what those words mean. These are words that have had people lose 40, 50 years of their lives institutionalized. These words have real power. (laughs) 
they mean something. You give a child that label, that's following them. They're going to get picked on in school. They're going to get beat up over it. They're going to be ostracized. They're never going to have that key component of connection because those words just separate people into categories where they can't connect, I guess, is my point. Another thing with language is speaking their language, right? I mean, being comfortable swearing in front of my adults that wanted to drop words. Yeah. Just let it be clear that those are words we're allowed to use in session, right? That, that's yeah. one thing I love about my therapist. I, if everybody knew what I said to him, probably wouldn't like me so much, but it's nice to give them that space and, and yeah. to be able to share mm -hmm. back and forth to them, to use their own language is very helpful. Well, it's being person-centered. We need to meet the client where they are. Yep. It's not, they need to meet us, we meet them. And that needs to be the focus, person-centered. What were you going to say, Liz? I was going to say too, like, yeah, letting, allowing people to be comfortable in their own forms of expression. Um, but also, if you are going to use those clinical terms with someone, you have to really define what you mean, because these words mean different things depending on the person you're talking about. So when you say someone is actively psychotic, what is that? How are you breaking it down for them so they understand what the hell you're talking about? Because clinicians will know, we'll have a frame of reference for what we need, but psychosis to one person looks very different from psychosis for another person. You need to be very specific so that what you're offering is actually helpful and not mm -hmm. damaging. Just to remind us of, you know, we're here to help. So let's, the tools we use should actually be helpful. Speaking of tools and techniques, what are, now again, there's, you know, so many different clinical theories and, and clinical therapeutic approaches. What are your recommended treatment approaches? What do you prefer to use? Rob, you mentioned solution-focused therapy earlier. Right. Yeah. Tell us a little that, bit. That, I mean, that's really what I like to use. I <laughs> So, or I worked because of the time frame, socioeconomic level, where they figured they were with education level, we always wanted to do cognitive behavioral therapy. But to me, that was always, eh, whatever, right? We just kind of talk. So I really like the solution-focused talk because I like looking for things that they were doing well, why they were doing well with them, and how we got back to them, or where they wanted to be, right? You asked me before, how do you know where you're at the end? Well, if you've decided that I will be doing I'll wake up tomorrow and X, Y, and Z is how I'm going to be. All right, what do we need to do to get to that? So I loved using the miracle question. I mm. liked using scaling. Scaling was really helpful for a couple of my clients in particular. Okay, you're here. Where were you when we started? Where are you now? And what do we need to be for you to feel like you're finished? So those are the things that I really like to use as far as solution focused. Uh, and I think it's applicable, and I know it's applicable to depression, anxiety, there's just a whole slew of things that you can use it for and with uh, that I think is very valuable. So as I always joke, when I grow up, I want to be a solution-focused therapist. Uh, so obviously I'm not treating people directly as a non-clinician, but some of the therapies that I have found myself uh, encouraging people to look into have been more on the um, that mind-body connection type of interventions just because of the way people disassociate from their bodies when they've experienced trauma and how that can have some pretty serious ramifications and that people may not even be aware of some of the physical health issues they may be having because they're just so used to not be paying attention to the body or being uh, even being aware that something's happening. So 
as cheesy as it sounds, yoga is actually one of the most effective treatments, interventions for trauma, just because of its impact on the nervous system. I have personally found it very helpful. There are other, like EMDR, I think is probably a very good intervention. I do think that one needs, there needs to be some care around that though, because I think it leaves people pretty raw initially. And like the one time that I did seek that out as a treatment, the therapist was like in the middle of Manhattan and I would have had to leave there at rush hour to, you know, get on a subway and deal with being in a sardine can with hundreds of people uh, and being in a potential place of being triggered. And I was like, he was like, yeah, you're probably going to find yourself, you know, a little, a little raw. And I'm like, and I can't do this because there's never any good time <laughs> where I'm not going to be someplace where I'm dealing with all of this extra overstimulation. But mm-hmm. anyone I know who has ever gone through that says it's been very helpful. And they don't even know why it works. They just know that it works. What else do I recommend? I really have been drawn lately to uh, the positive psychology movement, like Martin Seligman, and just the way that they've been reframing rather than focusing on deficits, focus on what's working and what's really going well and uh, cultivating the things that people do that will lead them to that place of healing rather than focusing on what needs to be fixed. I really am drawn to that. I don't, I haven't really seen it in action in practice yet, but in health coaching, we use a lot of it, which I'm working on my second certification in that now. We use a lot of positive psychology techniques in our one-on-one interventions with folks. And it's amazing what you can help coach someone towards if you focus on what's right <laughs> versus what they need to fix. Or if you focus on mm-hmm. taking away taking away things from people, people instinctively buck against that. But if you focus on adding things on to someone, they're usually pretty receptive to that. I would agree. It's all about our perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's been, you mentioned a language earlier. I think that there's been a lot uh, that's been perpetuated that there's a problem with you. Yep. That message has been delivered loud and clear for many, many years. And I think that's a stain on the mental health field. And so I think re-engineering this to be, hey, let's focus on what's going well, rather than trying to fix you. Like there's, there's a problem with you. I think that's, that's yep. good stuff. I also want to touch on how we ourselves as clinicians and uh, mental health professionals in the field, what causes secondary trauma? Yeah, I, I think for me, where I could see it and where I've saw it before was stories that hit close to home, right? I think that was the big thing where there was the potential for me. Just you know, hearing somebody's trauma story is, was the potential. Putting yourself in those shoes, that's where I talk about those living and compartmentalizing my life was very important to me because otherwise I, I remember going to a session with my therapist saying, this is getting to me, this and that. And we talked about why and we worked on some things and I improved from there. But it's, it's when you, when you absorb too many blows sometimes and you're not separating yourself is where I can, I saw the potential where it occurred with me is not taking myself out of it. Right. So it's funny. My wife and I watch a movie and she's like, oh, this is off. I'm like, okay, it's not real. So I could do that with a movie. But when you're in a room and somebody tells you the terrible thing that happens to him, you're like, shit, that is real. How am I going to deal with this? And knowing that it was very real to them. So for me, working really hard to just try to separate that because it is, it can really draw things back up and out of you that will take you out of 
it's almost like uh, just getting knocked off your game in the middle of a session. You've got to be careful with those things and just be aware of it. I would agree with that because so much of my experience has been working in, you know, direct care in like hospital settings or clinic settings. I actually shared this earlier today with someone else, um, a story, my first job in mental health, actually. So I was just a mental health tech, you know, the lowest paid person on the totem pole working, you know, I just gotten uh, moved to Florida and got back into working. And I, at that point, I think I was 30. So yeah, I had just turned 30. And this was my first unit. It was a very punitively run unit. It was all people who were court ordered there for up to like a year, I think was the maximum that they would be there. And these folks had a lot of issues. And there was a young woman on there who believed that Satanists were outside the hospital Keep in mind, this hospital was the last TB hospital left in the United States at this time. So it was in a town called Lantana, Florida. So it looked like a prison to begin with. And it had folks with TB on one side and the mental health locked unit on the other. They actually filmed a horror movie there with Joey Lawrence. That was there. Like, that's how horrible this place was. But she believed that these Satanists were outside, that they'd followed her from Staten Island. And she happened to be from Staten Island, where I was from. So we kind of had a bonding moment about that and that they were waiting outside to kill her, and that they had convinced some of the staff on the unit to be with them so that they were going to like open up the door and let them come in and that they were going to kill her. So she was really gearing up. Being, she was really upset. She was shaking. She was crying. She was pacing up and down the hallway. And the nurse at the time, this much older woman who was an army nurse, at one point, she had a not a great bedside manner. She, she says to the woman, you need to calm down right now. And of course, that wasn't helpful. And this woman wasn't calming down. So she decided that she needed to take a PRN. And when the woman didn't want a PRN, she decided she was going to force it on her. So she had two very large male techs drag this woman down the hallway in front of me. And I mean, drag her feet were on the floor. She was bucking it trying to get out. They were much Mm. bigger than her. So they just clamped down on her. They bring her into the uh, into the quiet room, they call them, which is basically the isolation room with the bed in it. And they throw her face down on it. And the nurse says to me, put your body weight, climb on top of this woman and put your body weight on her so that she stops struggling because she's flailing around too much and I'm never going to get this shot in her butt. And I did it because I was young. I had no way of knowing that this wasn't something that we did. <laughs> I had no frame of reference for it. And the whole time that I'm lying on this poor woman while she's struggling and terrified now that, you know, we are the Satan worshipers and we're, we're killing her essentially. Um, she's crying and saying my name over and over again, Liz, why are you doing this to me? Liz, why are you doing this to me? And I just remember I had this very, like I'm actually tearing up now just thinking about it, this very come to Jesus moment of where I was like, oh my God, this could be me. Like I literally came from a home that was violent as a child where people put their hands on me against my will. And here I am putting my entire body onto another person and calling that help. (laughs) To make it even worse, like the nurse was struggling to get the shot. She almost gave me the hellball. I would have been out for like a week if because this woman was a lot larger than me. So the dose they were giving her, forget it. And she slept for three days. And I remember that the staff just went into the kitchen and ate their lunch and pretended like nothing happened. And I'm just sitting there like, holy shit. Like we literally just terrified this woman. We re-traumatized the hell out of her. We doped her up for three days so that she couldn't move. And we called this help. I couldn't 
I couldn't come back from that for a really long time. <laughs> that kind of stuff re-traumatizes staff. We come with our own histories. We may or may not be aware of them at the time. And then we're asked to coerce people into doing things because science says that they're not able to make those decisions for themselves. I think that traumatizes the hell out of you in this field. That's secondary trauma at its finest because it took me years to shake that off. And clearly, I still get emotional because I teared up trying to tell it now. What happens when that secondary trauma begins to impact you? How do you handle it? One, how do you recognize it? How do you, rec I apologize. How do you recognize it? And then how does it impact? Well, we have things like burnout. What is it? Burnout is where you can't, I always get them confused between secondary. So one is where you just can't deal with people anymore. Like you have no, no empathy left. You cannot face, cannot work with another client. Is that burnout? I, I confuse them. The other one is where you can, you can work with, you can work with people, but you know what? I'm confusing them. So that's how you tell when you just don't give a shit about your job anymore. Yeah. It's time for you to take a vacation. <laughs> take a few days off of work. Group. It's time to <laughs> take a few days off, go find what nourishes you, whatever your source of, of support is. You need to dig your roots down deep into that because when I see people sinking to things that are way beneath them professionally because they've been doing it too long or when they don't see hope anymore, when they can't see hope for someone and they just think that this is it and this person's a lost cause, it's time, you need to change. You need to regroup because that's not true. And that's exactly why you got into this field is to be that hope, you know, to help them see the hope, I mm -hmm. should say. What about you, Rob? Again, I compartmentalize with that creeping anxiety feeling when someone was talking to me about something and I know that it's getting me almost too in touch with my feelings. Like when in session, you need to be in touch with your feelings, but when it draws you really close and gets you back to a point, that's when I would recognize it. And they were telling me things and it was like, okay, this is, I was unable to separate it clinically. That's when I would recognize it and, and, and know that it was having an effect on me. Because in general, I have, because I'm an RN also, I have both sides of that minor. I had the subjective and the objective. I, I felt like I went from a very hard science where, Seth, if we went and did a catheterization on you, I would know what your right coronary should look like. But you tell me about your tra traumatic experience of being a teenager. Uh, it's different, right? It's different for you than it was for Liz or for me. So whenever I would get drawn in really close and the emotion would be very wide open for me, that's when I knew that I was, it was affecting me. Uh, and time to take a step back and um, just kind of, you know, I had a lot of stress headaches mm -hmm. uh, when I was in school. And that was mm -hmm. a big part of it, I think, was some of that was the trauma and some of it was the weight of everything that I was dealing with. And so just learning what those things were and how to step out of them a little bit. And Liz joked about drinking. Mine was a lot of The Office. Uh, U.S. version, a lot of the Beatles channel. <laughs> Those are my go-tos to because I would want something that was like, you know, people like comfort food. I had comfort TV and comfort music, things I didn't have to think about, mm -hmm. things I could just put on, and they were always consistent and always the same. Dwight Schrute was always funny. Yeah. I always loved George Harrison. So those <laughs> are the two things that just kind of got yeah. me through where I was at and where and, and to this day, if I need comfort, those are the things that I go back to uh, that kind of wall me off from the uncomfortable part yeah the beetles are good for stress management i agree <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I like that you're talking about coping strategies because that's really kind of how I wanted to wrap up this interview um, was to talk about looking over the last year. Um, what have been some of the things you've done to display healthy self-care skills or coping strategies, maintaining a healthy work-life balance? Mm. You've already mentioned some things around being, you know, around uh, secondary trauma, um, but just in general, uh, just kind of wrap things up, things that might be helpful both for clinicians and clients. I've gotten way more into mindfulness than I think I gave that technique credit for. And I've come to recognize that there are many different ways to develop practice around that, that it doesn't have to just be with meditation. So something I've started to do, because it's real easy when you live in a city like New York to we have like a code about how you travel around the city. You don't make eye contact, you look down, you kind of block out everything that's around you while you're always keeping that, you know, the eye in the back of your head open for someone coming up on you. So it's, <laughs> you're, you try to engage in the world that way. And so you miss out on a lot. Like there's been times when I've walked by, uh, you know, the, the quick shift from winter to spring and missed it because one day I had my head down and it was no leaves on the trees. And the next day I walked outside and the leaves were all green. So I've tried to develop a mindful walking practice when I'm going between my home and the train. I will try to force myself to be aware of what's going on around me and like really get into, oh, what am I smelling? Sometimes it's not always pleasant, but at least I'm aware that there are smells around me or well, what am I looking at? You know, and oh, look, there's Christmas lights on that building and, and there's Hanukkah menorah in this person's window or, you know, like just being more aware of what's going on around me. For me, that's huge because I have spent years floating through it and not not really being aware. And I like to go sit outside. I will literally spend hours sitting in the bench in the little park across from my apartment, just watching people, just paying attention. That's been very helpful for me for self-care. Yeah, for me, it's... That's one thing. Uh, we're a very scheduled family. So for me, schedule is important. Like my wife and I get up very early, five days a week and run together. And that's the time that we get to share together. So we've been together on, we'll be married 30 years in December. We've been together 31 years. So that time is very important for us, right? That levels me back out because therapy wise, it was very stressful, all these other things. Cause I, so I worked a full-time job and I saw clients, you know, 10 or 12 hours a week. Plus I drove everywhere. So basically 20 hours. And so for me, that consistency of spending the time with her, being able to decompress because we had a lot going on. Her, her mom was passing away this last year and just being able to step out of those things for a while. I'm, I'm telling you what, when I finished, she, she's, I thought I was happy. She was really happy. I'm like, I got all these student loans. She's like, look, if you never use this again at this moment in time, I'm okay with this <laughs> because <laughs> you're home for dinner. If I need I you to totally pick up our, our, if you have to pick up our son, you're here. So, for me, it's, it's just, just kind of having a pattern and consistency and, and trying to be as scheduled as possible. I know that sounds weird in, in the midst of all this, but staying on those patterns. And when we miss those days that we didn't run together, and when I say early, we wake up at 4.15. We usually start running by 4.45. Oh. And if, it's, if we run outside, we're outside by 4.30, right? Because she's got to get ready for school and stuff. But it just gives us that time together to kind of level out um and when you've been together as long as we have mm -hmm. sometimes that's when we can talk about things things that we weren't able to talk about before uh we can kind of get those out then so uh, i don't know if that answered your question or not seth but that's that's
that's kind of where I feel like I live. Yes. Well, exercise yeah. is huge. You've given me some ideas though, Rob, uh, in all honesty, because Adam has been working on his dissertation now for 10 years. We're in the home stretch, he's supposed to be graduating in May. Well, we had some oh, yeah. life factors get in the way that slowed him down a bit, but uh, I am so looking forward to him being done. And I feel like I would love to be able to develop some sort of practice like what you guys have just yeah. to reconnect again, because an exercise, of course, would be the healthier option. <laughs> yeah, there, there are plenty of other things we could do, but that appeals to me. So thank you. Well, we're not fast. That's one thing, but we do it together. And I always like the times I have to run behind her. That doesn't make me sad at all. So she always laughs. <laughs> this is, that's what keeps me going, just chasing her. So uh, she, uh, you know, because if she does listen, she is, she got me through school. She had a lot of shit going on in her life. And she put up with a lot to get me through school. And lots of nights, uh, dinner without me, that's a big thing to her and all these things. And um, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have gotten through school if it wasn't for her. So, yay. Well, again, thank you both for coming on to Mental and having this discussion on trauma with me today. Oh. Until next time. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, Seth. Thanks.